0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, I'm Megan Wildhood, a host on New Books and Poetry, a part of the New Books Network. And I am so excited to have one of my pressmates here, um, who I'm going to be interviewing, Caitlin Cowan, and I am just going to introduce her, and then we're going to jump right into her latest collection, Happy Everything. So Caitlin Cowan is the author of Happy Everything. Happy Everything forthcoming in February, 2024, from Cornerstone Press. Caitlin holds a PhD in English from the University of North Texas, an MFA in Creative Writing from the New School, MBAs in English and Creative Writing from the University of Michigan. Caitlin has taught writing at UNT, Texas Women's University, and Center for the Arts, and elsewhere. She works in arts nonprofit administration at Blue Lake Fine Arts Camp, where she serves as Director of International Programs and as Chair of Creative Writing. Caitlin also writes Pop Poetry, a weekly pop culture and poetry newsletter from Michigan's West Coast, where she lives, with her fiancé, their young daughter, and their two mischievous cats. Ah, yes, the mischievous cats. Thank you so much for joining me today, Caitlin, and I'm so excited to jump into this amazing collection, Happy
1: Everything. Thank you so much for having me, Megan. This is really exciting to talk to you about the book.
0: Yes. Um, So I would love to jump right in here and talk about um, the inspiration uh, for the book. I think readers, um, once you start reading the book, you might uh, kind of get a flavor of that. But just to kind of give readers a a taste of kind of what uh, inspired this book and kind of how long you've been um, putting this together.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Happy Everything is a book that was born from the wreckage you might say of one of my former lives um i like to say it's not a book about bad men and a bad marriage it's not a book about the wedding industrial complex or mere misogyny it's a book i wrote about the ways in which women are asked to facilitate pleasure to be beautiful and to participate in capitalism as joy um the speaker of these poems is a version of myself. She lets her husband win at Jeopardy. She smashes her wedding china in the street. She keeps celebrating her birthday, but nothing ever changes. And sometimes she's Jeannie of I dream of Jeannie, who and fantasizing about, you know, shattering her pink bottle. But she sees herself as part of this ancestral tradition of making oneself smaller to accommodate men. And this book is about what happens after that. Um, The book was born from my creative dissertation that was written during my PhD program at the University of North Texas, during which time I was both married and divorced. And in addition to the kind of patriarchal nature of the marriage I was part of, I also found that my poetry professors who were exclusively older white men were averse to my subject matter, which was too domestic is the kind of message that I in, interpreted or, you know, in I guess, from, from those meetings I had with them. And so, you know, I've been working on this book in some ways since 2015, but it really started to take shape for me, um, in 2018, a few years later when I had to really ask myself three years out from graduating with my PhD, like, what the hell is this?
0: Oh my gosh, that is an amazing summary. Uh, I feel even more seen, uh, as we were talking about slightly before the, um, before getting on the recording, I, as someone who has also, uh, been through a divorce as a, as a woman going, having gone through a divorce, um, I felt incredibly seen by this book and validated in a way that I did not know that I had not been and needed to be. Um, and I think that that's, so that's one (laughs) plug, any woman who's been through a divorce, uh even if you don't think poetry is your thing you should read this book um i and then this this summary of like facilitating pleasure and capitalism as joy oh my gosh oh my gosh mind blowing okay (laughs) um yeah this was a book i really needed and didn't know that i needed um so that is uh that's something i know that sometimes as writers we're not always sure what we're doing, like you said, what, what the hell is this? And it's like, I'm so glad you did not give up. And you answered that question, uh, because I'm one of those readers that really needed that, this work. Um,
1: and so good to hear, like, I don't want you to have needed this book because of the subject matter, but I am glad that you have it now.
0: Yes, I am too. I'm so glad. Um, just as a, it's, I mean, it's, it's one thing to be, to you know, hear, Oh, I'm sorry. Or hear condolences. Like when people hear that, you know, you've, you've gone through a divorce, even as at, at a young, relatively young age. Um, But it's another thing to have your experience realized without having to explain it. Um, Yeah.
1: Yeah. And that's one of the things that was a little bit difficult for me in the PhD program is that I was starting to look around at this subject matter even before the divorce happened. Um, I actually wrote the one of the poems in the book Instructions for Divorce shortly after I got married and everyone in my hmm. program was like, are you okay? And I said, yeah, why? You know, n- not thinking anything of it. And I started to get deeper and deeper into the subject matter. And then my marriage did fall apart. And then I was bringing these poems to my professors and they too are saying, you know I don't think this is it. This isn't, you have to think differently think harder the the you know the subject matter okay but what else what else what else they kept asking what else and I mean I think I think it was formative for me to look around and see oh this is not really just merely about patriarchy and marriage it's it's a much larger problem
0: yes yes that's one of the things I loved about this collection is it weaves in so many things. Like it's not, the summary would not be appropriate. Like this is a poetry collection about divorce. Like, no, it's so much bigger and not that divorce is not huge because speaking as someone who has gone through one, it's very huge. But it also is, it doesn't It doesn't stand alone. Like as big as as divorce is it unfortunately is part of a bigger problem um and one that i didn't one that i didn't quite expect the ways that you've named it and called it out um there are definitely some obvious like oh well you you know adultery is one thing or we didn't love each other anymore or those things it's like no it's none of that there's this systemic look at at divorce that is Like, you don't even say the word that much in the collection. So it's so, it's so brilliant. I want to um, jump into one of them uh, from the poem, Happy Everything. There's a line that goes, Her bad dreams are the sounds of no one in her kitchen. Neighbors potlucking on her rotten deck, silent and swirling their sangria, wishing its whirlpool would drown them. So there in that one line, there's just, there's so, so much. And I, I want to, I kind of want to explore and hear your thoughts on what are the generators of these kinds of bad dreams? Because it's not just nightmares at night. It's like, these are, these are things that people live. These are real scenarios. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, this poem, the title poem um, and the title of the collection come from an actual nightmare that my mother had and told me about many years ago. And, um, you know, the fact that part of her terror was having to hostess so many events at the same time or conversely, you know, my knowledge about how lonely her life can be. Um, it's made me think a lot about the ways in which women see community and what happens when that community disappears and the way that divorce impacts that. And um, yeah, I think that I would, I love the line that you picked out. I mean, I, I'm not, not, I love my own line. I love that you picked out that line. <laughs> um, wishing its whirl- whirlpool would drown them. I think there is something really sinister about some aspects of domesticity that appear, up here, you know, multiple times throughout the collection. And I think that, um, you know, what the question for me is, well, what happens when a role like that evaporates? Or where do these expectations come from? Where do we learn how to throw a party? who teaches us that as women? And for me, it was my mother and where did she learn it? And that kind of question I try to answer by some of the intersection epigraphs that come from this really bizarro um, book that I love and have had in my home. And I don't know where it came from, but I've had it for many years. It's from Practical Cookery and the Etiquette and Service of the Table, a compilation of principles of cookery and recipes with suggestions for etiquette for various occasions which is this 1930s American homemaking guide. Um, And I think when I dipped into that book, I just started to feel, you know, oh, like this is just in our bones. This is in the bones of our culture. And it's comforting in some ways to just sink into that the way that I have in my life, to sink into the domesticity, into the femininity and just let it envelop you. But then there's something really sinister about that, that I try to get at in that poem that you were quoting. Um, have I answered your question? Am I just getting, am I drowning in my whirlpool here?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, no, I love it. I I love that. I was going to ask about that, um, the the interstitial uh, or the the different parts and where those quotes come from. I was like, this reminds me of Cotillion, which I, I'm not 40 years old yet, and I had I did cotillion. I, I don't think I elected to do it. I didn't really fight my parents, but um, I was like, this, this is, I mean, it's, it, I could tell it was from a, 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 a time long past, almost a hundred years, but I was also like, and yet somehow, this is also in my memory of which fork goes where and how to let a boy at this point lead in a dance, even if, taller than him and i was like what is what what does that have to do with anything um and just like it yeah it is so deeply ingrained because i was like 14 when i did cotillion i mean old enough to have my own opinions but also like oh oh is this how okay this is how we're supposed to be women all right i've never seen this in my house i've never seen my mother do any of this but this is what we're supposed to do okay right
1: and- I mean, part of your your question about where do the bad dreams come from, it's, I mean, part of the question I tried to answer in this question, in this collection for myself was how did, how did I, how did someone like me, who I like to think of myself as very independent, feminist, educated, how did even I become seduced by some of the ease of the, you know, the roles that we're asked to play in domestic spaces. How did even I succumb to this in a certain way? Um, or, or you know, when I was taking dance lessons for my uh, wedding, my first marriage, we were taking dance lessons for the wedding. And this appears later in one of the poems after the party at the Bad Love Museum, the metaphor that the dance teacher kept giving us about, he's the frame and you're the painting. You know, that that's what's happening here. You need to just let that happen. And just, you know, receiving these messages and going, okay. And just moving on with my life as opposed to, you know, not thinking harder about it, but trying to square it more with my actual beliefs rather than just participating in it because that's what one does. Um, So I guess those are my bad dreams now, or they were. And I've exercised them through writing this collection.
0: Yes. I like I even I think of because this the line, the reason this line grabbed me, I think, is because of this as it was something that you said in your in um, earlier in as part of the inspiration of how women seek community and how that sort of falls apart or how how divorce impacts that and how there is. As you said, something sinister about domesticity and, and hosting parties is like, is that the way our mothers maybe uh, sought community? And even though it kind of made them miserable, I'm getting the impression that most of the women um, in the boomer generation, that's at least my mom is in that generation, Right, too. really did not like that. But that's what they were handed is like, this is how you have friends. And so they were like, well, yeah. We don't like this either, but here you go, daughters.
1: uh... It's the place where you're allowed to have power. I mean, Mm. we can go go all the way back to, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, enclosure acts, like women not having a a place in the public square and, you know, being pushed back into the home and saying, this is the only territory you have. The the hearth is your public square. This is what you've got. Um, And trying to make that work. And we do, I mean, I was great at throwing parties. I threw the best parties. I took such joy in it or what felt like joy or it it felt like enough for a while um, until the whole sort of project started to fall apart. But yeah, I mean, there is a really long historical line of, of what it means to derive power from your home and from your hearth and it's political you
0: know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as you're saying this, I'm realizing, oh, the, the power in that, in um, like, where the, the center of power is, is the home is that is exclusionary for those who, who like, I'm like, I don't think I know how to throw a good party. I <laughs> yeah. like, I did cotillion. I know how to set the forks out. I just don't know where to get the forks. Like where do you get tiny
1: forks? Why is that even well, a mask? Yeah. And it's only a, it's only a source of quote unquote real power if you're able to reproduce the workforce, right? Like yeah. to get super political. Your your center of power really only exists if you're able to give something back to the machine, which is to have children and be a mother. And that's now you've got your power because you are, you know, contributing to the machine. And it's just it's something I've I thought about quite a bit. I thought about this a lot. I was reading. Um Taliban and the Witch when I was at Hambage, um, when I was working on the last last iteration of this manuscript, the Silvia Federici book, just about the history of witchcraft and the history of women and their relationship to capitalism and, and their their crucial part that they play in capitalism and always have, but the ways in which they've been, you know, manipulated and controlled because of the power that they actually have and obscuring the sources of their power and all that kind of stuff. It's just a really, really fascinating book. And that actually informs my next manuscript that I'm working on a lot more, um, the witchcraft element, but yeah, it's, it's, it's something I think about quite a bit and I still like to throw parties, but they feel different now. <laughs> yeah.
0: It, you're right. It's yeah. Cause it's one thing to have been handed the source of power and kind of another thing to own it and, make it yours even as it has it's morphed from a source of deep long-standing oppression in ways that we don't we don't even understand now um but we do we expect like i don't expect men to throw good parties i don't expect men to throw parties at all but like when there's a party i'm like oh yeah probably like my my friend is hosting it my it's it's a woman hosting it Yeah, if it's the super bowl then then there doesn't really be there there's no expectation for that kind of party just
1: yeah i mean and the thing that that really ended up informing my thinking about this with the divorce that i went through was that that i began to you know and again this book is it's drawn from my life it is not a facsimile of my exact life but inspiration wise um you know i i think about i think about Maggie Smith's recent new memoir. You can make this place beautiful, and she says it's at one point in there that her literary career was taking off, and she realized that she was needed back at her post. That her her husband, there was this essential conflict between who she was as an artist and who she was in her home, and when she one started to eclipse the other, everything fell apart. And I began to realize in my own marriage that the more I I didn't think it really mattered if I hosted these parties or I was this, this kind of wife or that kind of wife. But the more I tried to be my own self, the less able and interested my partner was in relating to me. And so it's a familiar and sad story, really.
0: That is the part that made me feel the most seen was, how is it that I ended up in a covenant, a sacred covenant, with a person who liked me less the more authentic i was correct and where did i learn that that was okay and where did i learn that any and all of the red flags that i did see before i did see them before it wasn't like looking back i saw them it was like no no i saw this Why did I, where did I learn that that was acceptable? And then I just, it was like, oh, I don't, I don't actually have power over this. And there isn't going to be someone who would actually, would actually love me better. That, that's just not, that's not where the power is at all. I didn't quite think of it in terms of power, but now looking back, it's like, it is, it's an, it's that sort of, that sort of way of relating to the the word love, which is that's not what that word actually means, but it's like that comes from from the longstanding lesson of where
1: power is. And that lesson you're talking about, that is what ultimately allowed I made help me feel like, okay, there is a through line to all these poems I've been also writing about my family. Yes. Because <laughs> That's where some of it comes from. That's where the lessons start, I think. And it was shocking for me to just wake up and realize that I had intuited so much from my family, thinking that I had learned better already. but I hadn't quite maybe now I have or maybe now I'm a little farther down the road. But, yeah, the impact of you know, my upbringing is definitely a bearing on this book, too.
0: Yes, that's there. There was so much, um, especially the talk about the uh, the father daughter relationship. There's um, there's a line here and I'm finding from my father drives to Muskegon. I'm probably not saying that right with a bouquet you said it perfectly <laughs> with a bouquet of flowers, though I will not see my father again. I will look for him in other men will let his absence flood me like cold water this line grabbed me because a lot of times we think women who go through divorce had like physically abusive fathers or angry fathers or actively bad fathers. And this line about absence is like, that's, that's what happened. That's what happened to me. I mean, my, my Mm -hmm. father did not physically leave. Um, He's, he's still alive. My parents are still married 50 years, but There was no emotional connection really and Mm -hmm. it was like that does feel like cold water yep and like shrink wrap in emotional isolation so um and this this line um prompts me to ask like so talk about the like father-daughter relationship and the impact on this on the on the the speaker's life and on the collection um as it sort of unfolded
1: yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, my my younger life was definitely characterized by just like an absence, like you said. My father um, was a part of my life until I was about 12. Um, and my parents divorced a very acrimonious divorce. Um, but even prior to that point, he worked all the time. He just worked all the time. I have so few memories of him, really. Um, he's a neuropsychologist and the memories I do have of him are very colored by the kind of work that he did. And the dimension of his work really did impact the divorce and its aftermath too, because um, my perspectives on marriage and caretaking, I've, you know, started to understand, have been heavily influenced by both my mother's disability and my father's insistence that she was fabricating her illness, which was a part of our lives um, when they were splitting up. And it's a part of the book too. Um, So I ended up being raised by my um, mother, who was basically a single parent from that point onward. And um, my father worked, continues to work with people with traumatic brain injuries. And I, one of my, one of my strongest childhood memories is him describing what it meant to malinger or to make up your symptoms or may make up your pain or exaggerate your pain and um i end up asking that question like am i making up my pain in uh happy father's day one of the poems in the book and so my just starting to question my own reportage of the truth wondering what dement, to what to what extent caretaking is involved in marriage and what is a healthy amount and what is an unhealthy amount and what is What is, what is normal or what is, what was, um, you know, the caretaking level due to my mother's illness? In what ways did I take care of my ex-husband? In what ways was he looking for that? In what ways are all men looking for caretakers? And why are we so great at it and so ready for it? Um, Those are the kinds of familial through lines that informed that relationship that kind of undergirds the book.
0: Yes. Yes. That, I think I was, I was picking up the undercurrent of, oh, so it wasn't, it wasn't just my ex-husband. There are, really, is it, is it all men? And, and where did they learn that that was okay to, to seek that? Totally unconsciously, I'm sure most men are not actively forefront of their mind looking for that, but why are we so good at it? Why are we so ready to jump into that role? Even when, like, even when I am like, yeah, as an oldest child, I, I don't really want to be caretaking everything anymore. I would really like there to be space for others to take care of stuff sometimes and um or for stuff to just not get done and it be okay. Like it doesn't, the world's not gonna fall apart. Um and and yet I feel compelled still. To jump, in. where does that, where does that come from? Because it's really like it's probably related to the power question we were talking about before. Um, but there is that deep compulsion. Like there's this joke that like, oh, men just want to fix, men just want to fix, and it's like, I, I think that's only half the half of the year,
1: <laughs> actually. Yeah, I think I think that, I mean the pan, not that every, I, I mean I think the pandemic really reminded us all of something we already know, which is how much unpaid labor women do and how much our society revolves around the caretaking that they do and the homemaking that they do. And if they do not do it, things get very bad. (laughs) We women, you know, left the workforce on mass during the pandemic because somebody had to take care and that somebody is just almost always women And it's 2023, you know, it's not 1930. And which is not to say that caretaking is not a valuable task. I have a nine month old daughter. I love taking care of her. Um, I am not preaching against caretaking, but I think that it is such a much more necessary and complex position in society than we generally allow for.
0: Totally. Totally and yeah and speaking of that like we i think there mo- most women might be able to recognize just the tiredness that comes from the the constant expectation of caregiving that whether it's a child whether it's a sick person whether it's an elderly parent it's the expectation of caregiving usually falls if there is if there is a woman for it to fall on
1: it will fall on, on the woman. Right. Yeah. And, that kind of, that indignation is, is uh, that's sort of where I, I started the poem um, self portrait as my art reaction. That's, that's where that began for me. Yeah. That sense of, if there is a woman to answer this question, I had better find her no matter <laughs> what she's doing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. Uh, yes and 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 speaking of this like compulsion there seems to be also this compulsion or draw maybe is a better word to to uh love what we what we think love is um there's uh in this uh in part 3 of um the uh after 18 months of marriage that's the title of the poem part 3 says I noose the top pearl of my best friend's ivory gown with its Tully lift and lift her above herself. Sorry. Alabaster bird, little darling. She will leave him in 26 days. And somehow I already know. I was like, I've had an experience like that too. Um, And yet we're so drawn to love. It's not just like, I don't think it's just weddings that we're drawn to. Weddings are actually kind of stressful in my experience, but we're so drawn to love and that like, we're, we keep seeking it even after like, I mean, divorce is devastating, whether it was messy or not. Um, I think not to downplay super messy divorces. Mine, uh, mine, unfortunately was, was not terribly, but what, what is it that, why do we, why do you think we're so drawn to love even in this? historical relationship of subservience um that women have had had to men. What is it that keeps us going after
1: what we I think- mean I think I think love is love is it's everything. It's fin- that's the good stuff. It's not love that I'm objecting to I just finished reading Fleischman is in trouble. Are you familiar with this novel? Yes. And There's a part in the novel where one of the characters says, you know, I think marriage is, it's like that quote about democracy. It's the worst form of government, except for all the other ones. <laughs> you know, th- that marriage of monogamy it's terrible, but it's the best of all the other things we have tried. And I think that in that poem, too, when I say I, I keep going, I love and I'm loved again. Weary as a feral cat that comes inside I'm you know to the extent that this is autobiographical which it is in many ways um I mean I'm engaged to be married again on September 30th of this year and um thank you I mean I andied up again and I intend to continue to ante up I think that love is not the problem it is this system's that we've devised that are supposed to create or contain or facilitate love that actually just perpetuate a society in which men have all their needs met and women exchange some of their power for a little safety. I don't know. Is that it? I am figuring this out day by day. I don't know. Um, Love is everything. I think that that's actually what we need more of we need less capitalism we need less inequality in relationships and if you are in a relationship where you truly privilege equality that's all you need mm. there's plenty of room for love there yeah because that what what else
0: could allow love to flourish really
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah um, yeah, and speaking of uh, of weddings, there's this line from the poem "Happy Anniversary" that says, "Outside, I fingered pennies for the wrong wedding, a final fixture to hide behind." I I have so many questions about this line because it's so <laughs> so good. First did you write this w- when you had like the timeline of these poems is are you writing them in general and specifically this one um when you'd met your current fiance or is this all before and you're just like this was just wrong and i don't know that there's ever going to be a right wedding
1: a good question um i first drafted this poem it's old i could look it up i I wrote it, I began writing it in 2014, which I know because that was the year I was married and I was working at a high-end steakhouse in the town where I went to grad school to make some extra money for this lavish wedding I would end up having. And it was just a very bizarre experience in food service. Uh, I was hostessing, hosting there. So it. it I definitely started writing it Prior to ever being divorced, as many of these poems were written, Mm. um, the ending has been harder for me to stick. And the ending of this one has changed.
0: Mm.
1: I think that many of these poems have, you know, they've been with me for so long. Some of them, there is a poem in there that's from 2010. I think there's at least one. And I've just been living with it, refining it. Some of these poems just live with me and live with me. And I work on them and work on them. And I think in some ways they're not done because I don't have it figured out yet. I don't know what the poem really, I'm not listening to what the poem is trying to tell me or I it's not finished because I, not that every poem has one final meaning, but that I haven't fully understood what the part of me that wrote that poem was trying to say. Maybe I'll say that. And this one definitely, I never felt like I stuck the landing until I got to the line that's there now. Um, because I was just the image, the image has been the same lighting up a cigarette in my former life as a smoker during what is worse. Like smoking and working food service is just, it's not good, but I was hide out there hide. And I started to think about what else I was hiding or hiding from. And what was the thing I was hiding behind. And so and then behind is the refrain word in this guzzle, the form of the poem. And so thinking about how I mean, of course when you pick a refrain word, you have to commit to landing on it. And so it really ended up informing my um my thinking about the hiding and the way the other people in the poem are hiding, the sort of patrons of this spanky restaurant. And what are we all hiding from as we get drunk on tequila? after work after our shift is over what are we all hiding behind what was i hiding behind at the end of the poem
0: yes that i mean i could i could feel that like behind the restaurant in the dark with the sick like i could feel that um even as i've i've never experienced i've never worked in food service but um and i'm i haven't been a smoker but i could just like somehow i was dropped right there i was dropped that's right there. high
1: praise that's because I can see it I've spent years trying to see it so that's really great I'm glad Uh, you can see it I just I I know I
0: think part of it has to do maybe with um with the form I don't mean to get too like esoteric on on the listeners here but there are so many forms of poems here there's like prose poems there's guzzles there's all different kinds of uh the the poems take many different forms of a variety like a noticeable variety which I love and I wonder, um it was that intentional or did the poems kind of come to you that way? Or how did how did you decide on on the That's form? a great
1: question. I try to just really listen. I know it's like the most irritating thing in the world to hear a writer say, I I don't know where the poems come from, man, but I do really <laughs> try to listen to the, you know. words that are coming to me to the, I hate to say the voices that are coming to me because it implies certain things, but I try to listen when I'm hearing something in my head. And sometimes I just feel what the form is. Um, I do love prose poems. There's tons of prose poems in here. I really, I just adore that form for so many reasons. I think it allows you to really do what poets do best, which is focus on image and, and, you know, atmosphere and to make illusions, but it also gives you more real estate and it allows you to focus a little more on narrative without actually writing a story Um, and i mean there are there are a variety of forms too just because i think i've grown with this book so much and i've had it with me for so long that i've i've learned i've become more comfortable with different kinds of forms but also there is something i like how heterogeneous it feels because it does feel like a party kind of just like a bouquet of flowers like whoa happy everything look at all this crap because that's kind of how you know it feels you you know you've got a box of wedding gifts that you have to return like look look at all this junk look at all this stuff and look how the same you know ideas fit differently or feel different in different forms and you get to see different aspects of them like turning like when you turn a gemstone you see different facets different pieces of it i'm glad that it feels noticeable in that way um because it feels kind of like a expensive junk drawer or something. <laughs>
0: yes, I I loved it and I I think I mean uh, partly I am a poet um but I think there was just this it did fit it was happy everything it was variety everything it was and that is also form follows function right so it was like um yep everything is impacted in a divorce yep it's everything mm-hmm. all the things all the forms there's no place that you can hide it's it, it it comes out in this form it comes out in this form it comes out in this form and um i think i was i was and i don't know if people who have not gone through a divorce would have picked up on that but i sure did and i appreciated like yep this does touch every every aspect of your life even if it's not a particularly messy long drawn out process um mine praise god was not but still yeah, i'm still finding ways that it's touched Like, I'm like, oh, it's, it's been four years and that, that fixture of a previous life is still there.
1: Yeah. Thank you for that reading. That's so astute. I really like that. It does. I mean, yeah, it touches everything and using different forms like that kind of proved it, it proved it to me in some ways, but it also gave me different tools to examine it in different ways, which I was grateful for.
0: Yes. Yes. The, the, the gem and, and having it, uh, reflect different, um, facets. I mean, that was, that's, and I just, I hadn't, I haven't come across a collection like that where it's, I mean, you think it's one topic. It's it's really totally not. There's so there, there's, uh, the, the poem half past, which is, mm. um, that focuses on, the neuropsychologist, um, that, uh, your, that your father had as a, as a career, it's just like, yeah, the, 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 the lateral bilateral neglect or unilateral you know, neglect, that is so fascinating. Um, it really is.
1: It's a, it's a really interesting language to have grown up with, um, yeah. to, to know about and to have known about from a young age. It's, I mean, when I realized I was kind of writing a book about this topic, I wanted to make sure that it wasn't just a book about how somebody hurt somebody else because those books are everywhere. And I think that I felt that I had more to say about it than that. And so I tried to really look at my life and find out what my languages were. And I was surprised to recall how much that impacted my life as a young person, that sort of language of psychology. For sure. I mean, that- Both of my parents actually had a background. My mother and father met in um, an anthropology class at Michigan State University in the seventies. They were both psychology majors and um, he went on to get his PhD and she was supposed to also earn hers, but she became ill and that did not happen for her. So they both had this background, this footing in psychology that I that kind of colored my adolescence in a weird way that ultimately ended up being interesting for poetry at least. <laughs> so. I, I just I yeah I I it seemed like I was like, yeah, this
0: this there's a deep knowing here, even as okay, so you're not a neuropsychologist, but there was a familiarity with this language um, that seemed kind of like it went it went pretty deep. I just that the poem Half Pass, I really appreciate because um where it's talking about um either people who have experienced like stroke or head trauma and they have this uh where they only draw half of a clock or they only draw like they draw all the numbers, but it's only on one side, or they only eat from half of their plate. And it's not um forgetting, it's it's actually ignoring. And I was like, when I read that, there it's it's italicized in in the poem. And I read that and I was like, I think my marriage was unilateral neglect oh, it's, well, not yeah. it's ignoring both sides it wasn't just oh, I'm accusing my ex of doing that to me. I was like no I think I think it was it, it was both
1: sides were one-sided and yeah hadn't thought I mean, about that's it. why that's why poet I mean i psychology is endlessly fascinating to me and there's part of me that thought that I too would go into that but that's why poetry ultimately for me is my preferred way of knowing because I can take what I know about psychology and I can marry that to images and to into metaphors and that is that makes ultimately more sense to me even than what a textbook is saying about the way the brain works that's such a fascinating jumping off point but where I take those kinds of things, that's how I make sense of of things. I think, yes. I think that's really smart what you were saying about, you know, using that distinction between. I think there's no malice when you when you have neglect like like unilateral neglect like that. Or when there's aphasia, there's no malice in head trauma. It's just right. there's something just not there. It's just not there. Right. Right. The other side of the clock is not there. It's I don't hate the left side of the clock. It's not there. It's just not And there. so that became a productive way for me of seeing the way that two people can understand a divorce. Yeah. That not that there are two sides to every story but that there's one side to every story and the other side does not exist. Yes.
0: Yes. I think that when I was you know because I think there's there are things in our lives that happen that are so big we're ju- we just we process them kind of here and there periodically, even when we've moved on, even when there's no more anger, there's no more bitterness, there's still this, Oh, now I understand this in a different way. Um, Divorce is one of those huge things. And um, so, and I, I just, I really appreciated that language of unilateral neglect and it's not forgetting. It's just that it isn't there. It's just not there. And it's like, yeah, there doesn't have to be malice. It wasn't it, it wasn't like that that's and that's helping me understand like it we, we just there was a thing that is supposed to be between two people in a marriage that just wasn't there.
1: And I mean, that kind of thinking helped me. I realized a long time ago if I was going to really write this book the way I wanted to, that I would have to eventually come to a place where I could write a poem like um I am because we were, which tries to really just be as fair as possible, to be as generous as possible to the other party, to look at something from a different angle and see what I could see, um, to to see it from the other side as far as anybody can, which is not very much you can try, <laughs> um, but to, you know, do it without malice. Yes yes to look at the poem the poem starts out like this is the one where I try yeah. to yes. be generous <laughs> and it's it, it felt contrived as I started but it really it went somewhere for me um it was it was nice to look at it in a way to give myself not only formal exercises with different forms but to give myself exercises and points of view too
0: Yes, this and this is um, bringing up a question for me uh, in the there's a um, from the lot from the poem March Madness as Memorandia. Yeah, um, this one was this one was a hoot. Uh, <laughs> I loved to make you happy. You didn't return the favor. The books I stacked in your nightstand were frosted with dust. You snoozed through readings from the cheap seats while my spit anointed the mic. Your games meant more than my poems. Your games meant more than me. I, When I read that, I actually, I didn't hear accusation. I didn't hear blame. I didn't hear anger. I just heard, this is what happened. So is writing, in, and I don't mean this in a trivializing way, but is, in, is writing in some ways therapeutic for you?
1: I think so. I think I we like to talk about that all the time, right? That yeah. writing is therapeutic and that by getting it out, by aestheticizing your experience, you're distancing yourself from it. You're taking it out of your body. You're examining it at arm's length. And that's all true. It's all true. I fully believe that it's true. And I know that there are things, you know, that I've experienced that are difficult or feel traumatic to me that I know, when I finally do write about that, I will feel better. <laughs> I, I can sense that. But in a certain sense, I think, too, that you are leaving a little bit of it there always. You're leaving a little bit of the original sort of pain that drove you to the page there. And I think it's there. I think it's accessible. Um, maybe if you want it to be. It's it's interesting because these poems are some of these poems are quite old now. And the place I am at in my life is so, so different. Mm-hmm head to tail different. Um, It's now that I'm starting to do publicity for this book, it's really interesting to have to back in and think about these things and revisit these experiences. And it doesn't feel inundating, but it definitely I'm able to sort of drop in through the poems to the, the state of mind that put me to the page, I think. And the writing absolutely is therapeutic, but I don't think, I don't think therapy is necessarily about exorcising the pain, Mm -hmm. nor is writing. I think it's just about um, making it highly tolerable. And if you're lucky, making it into something you can be a little proud of that you've made. Yes.
0: Yes. And I think one of the things that, uh, at least one of the ways I find that I can be proud of my writing is when it has helped someone else when it is definitely made someone else when it has brought someone else to that place of oh I can process this in a different way there's there's less anger there's less pain there's more understanding there's more as you say fairness because that was that was a goal for me too like I can't have this fist shaking for the rest of my life
1: yeah yeah
0: person who is also human because as you say a front this line from the marriage bed we humans are excellent at hurting each other you and i are two such scholars capable of limitless pain and it's like it was both as much as i can say i was hurt by this 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 and this that my ex did he has the yeah. same list and yeah. it's like we are we are just good at hurting each other yeah why do you think and we are we're so good at
1: that why are we so good? I don't know. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> excuse me, maybe not everybody is. I was better at it than I wanted to be, you know? Yep. Um, I think love makes you better at it. I mean, when somebody cuts you off in the road, you're like, hey, buddy. Yeah. You, know, you don't have a lot of ammunition. <laughs> Jerk. Right. When someone you love is cruel to you, I mean, you've got some really sick ammunition if you want it you know I mean you know what these intimate parts of people you know what their insecurities are you know how in ways in which they've disappointed you and ways in which they're embarrassed and what their childhood was like and it's just like <laughs> a manual for how to hurt the other person if you want to yes if you choose to it's that's what vulnerability is it's just totally exposing yourself and saying here's all my shit right please don't use it against me and then sometimes we do right and we have no control Yep. i mean when you ask if writing is is therapeutic i mean it is but you could argue that by writing a poem about something that was painful you're you're kind of making a little not a monument to it but like a little headstone for something and if you wanted to truly forget it perhaps you wouldn't write it but that's why poets are we're weirdos because we yeah. want to revisit we want to <laughs> revisit these little moments i mean yeah. if i had to live it if i had to go through it damn i better at least get a poem out of it right, <laughs>
0: right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, i love it um there are so <clears throat> so many more questions i could ask you but um to speaking of uh l- a little headstone um to close <laughs> well first i want to ask you is there anything that Um, I didn't ask you that you
1: wish I would have. That's a great question. Oh, maybe I always wonder what folks make of the registry poems, the like object poems. (laughs) Um, If you had any questions about those, because I had fun writing them. I think they're weird. I wonder, I just wonder how they, how they feel too. An outsider who is not me working on this book for a decade
0: <laughs> right right
1: yeah oh that's that's great yes so
0: I um as a as a whole uh I think the first one I I kind of I was like oh it's a it's a list oh it's a, and then I got it I was like oh that's what's going on here um and so I as someone who's who's gone through that process of we have to pick out stuff that we want other people to buy for us because other people are going to buy things for us <laughs> anyway. And we can't just say no thanks because people are going to buy stuff anyway. So we might as well not waste money. It just made me, I mean, all the capitalism questions came up of like, mm-hmm. why do we do this? I get it. People want to, people want to send the happy couple off and they into their new life, all set up. And then it's just, it just brought me like, I don't know if you had the similar experience where it's like, why do we have to like? Do we have we have three toasters? Do we really need another one? Um, do should yeah. we new one or I mean, how old is that? The ones that we somehow have three of together, and it's just like these weird questions that and conversations that you have with your with your partner. And I would I would remember we would get in stupid fights just because, and it was actually because neither of us cared enough. But we had to we felt we had to do it. I mean, I don't know if you how because it, yeah. you know, beginning in the frame of like capitalism is joy, it's like that's where my mind went
1: when the when the registry poems yeah. came. I mean the and then for me, I I mean I spent longer <laughs> I spent longer reckoning with what to do with that stuff than I did actually facilitating the legal dissolution of my marriage. The stuff <laughs> lingered and I developed these. I just, I I was weird. I had this, I realized I had this bizarre fetishizing relationship with these objects that I didn't even like and didn't want. Yes. Which I finally was able to realize that there are so many aspects of the marriage were things that I did not ask for nor want. But it was a very weird period having these deep relationships with these objects that are now, you know, mainly, mainly gone mainly gone from my life. I still have the uh crumb sweeper. Gotta hang on to the crumb sweeper. Oh my gosh, yes. From the poem. Yes. But it's a weird, it's a weird um place to be to realize that, you know, your family now has feelings about what you do with these objects. <laughs> and the emotional baggage that comes with that, um it really just got me thinking about you know, the ways in which the, the, the avenues that are, that are, and are not available to women in the aftermath of divorce and in the joy of marriage, that the way that objects end up becoming this way of relating to others and to your loved ones. And it's just, it's not, it's not good for us it's not um yes. it's not good for us it wasn't good for me I'll say um to have objects in my life that had that much power but then looking at the objects and looking deep into it and seeing so many things that were so many so many layers that I was surprised I, I hope the poems get close to that the, they are prose poems these poems that are registry poems because there's so much to say So look at a piece of Kate Spade wedding china and then to have to reckon with Kate Spade's um, suicide as the aftermath of this is happening and to think about what her empire stood for and and you know there's just so much there there was more than I there was more than I was expecting as I wrote these little poems about champagne flutes and stuff like that Um, but I am glad that I looked really hard at them even though it was bewildering to do it yeah
0: yes I oh I'm so grateful for that I had a similar experience and I thought I was doing it wrong I was like why does this matter this was even an object we thought about about yeah. whether or not to put on the registry and of course I somehow ended up with it and yeah
1: yeah of course I mean my mother and I had very serious arguments about Waterford Crystal champagne flutes that I never wanted and then they had to be in my home they had to be in my possession I had to keep them even after a divorce and that kind of moment really just made my yeah poetry sense (laughs) tingle and say hello this is not about a champagne flute it's about (laughs) some other things that you can find out about if you sit down to write about it But in the context of this argument, not about the champagne flutes.
0: Oh my gosh, I love it. Yes, that... And that is where capitalism intrudes. There's Mm. serious arguments that disrupt relationships about objects that are not wanted by the person who must keep them.
1: Rituals, clothing, objects... um... The language that we use to talk about marriage and divorce. um, The requirement at least at that time, at least in my part of Texas, to say to utter the words, my marriage is destroyed in a courtroom. Um, That's weird. There are so many ways that we go about this business, this commodification of romantic love and then we wonder why it's not working for folks. That's I hope that I've touched on some things in this collection that feel larger than the politics between just two people. Because it felt like quite a bit more than that to me the longer I lived it, certainly. Totally.
0: I think that's one, another way I felt totally seen too is like, okay, this was on some level a very private experience between me and another person. No divorce is the same, just as no marriage is the same. And yet there were so There were so many things in here that i was like i i lived that oh i had that experience too just even the feeling that i at least i read between the speaker and the ex i was like was my was my ex this person also because i kind of feel like maybe that's um that's that was it just felt so i don't even want to say parallel It just felt like it felt so the same, which is how I know it was like, this is actually a universal vein that has been tapped.
1: And again, I don't want it to be universal, but I've been writing, I've been writing poetry seriously since I was just a kid. And I've wanted to be an author for a very long time, not because it is fame or money making certainly if it were I probably wouldn't have selected poetry poetry selected me right um, but it's you know and i've been chided for for the kind of naivete of 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 thinking like this but i truly started writing because i felt seen when i would be in a bookstore as a kid i felt like these authors were seeing me and so to have finally you know the opportunity to make someone feel seen by what I'm writing that's just that's all I could ever really ask for
0: yes I another way that I totally relate um um so to close I would love for you to share uh from the collection happy everything the poem best order
1: I would be delighted to thank you for asking about this poem I it's one of the older ones in the book it won the literal press poetry prize Several years back, Judy Halebsky selected it to win. Oh, wow. And it was printed as a beautiful broadside that I love and cherish, except that it was printed under my married name at the time. Oh, no. And so now it is this, and now it is another apocryphal object in my home. Oh, no. <laughs> I love this poem and having it in the book is a great way to sort of reclaim it and recenter it for myself. Yes. <laughs> love it. This is best order. A teacher once told me to hold a ruler like a razor beneath my sentences, up to the jugular, a threat to make them stranger, to see them for the first time again and again, so I might find the flaws and fix. As I look at you, as I have for most of the last decade, through the bottom of my glass, through a bedsheet of smoke, I understand. We must make each other strange again each day. Even as the prying stars peer in through the Venetians, we must blind ourselves to that star shine of sameness so we might see vex ourselves once more to venture a straighter line, a sentence that stabs and is kind.
0: Yes, yes. I read the collection twice and then this is the third time getting into this poem and it's it's just so it's deeper richer every time thank you so much caitlin for joining me today and um for uh listeners i will uh you will be able to find uh the link to um uh, caitlin's website caitlin's work and the book happy everything um which you've just spent the last hour and only scratched the surface talking about thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Megan. Thank you for reading this book.
1: Thank you for the opportunity.
0: Yes. Thank you so much.